Um, it is also my pleasure this morning to, uh, to give you a little bit of an introduction to our speaker this morning, Carlos Calderon. I actually got to meet him last night, um, picked him up for, for our missions dinner, but uh, he grew up in Civil War-torn El Salvador, um, after which he actually went to the University of Texas in Austin, go Longhorns, there he says. Um, and then he and his wife uh, spent 20 years in the Middle East working with Muslims. And, uh, he actually also played a transformational role in, in transforming the Central American uh, mission from missions field to really a mission sending area of the world. Uh, now he is a VP, for international, a VP of International Ministries for Partners International, where he oversees missionaries in 37 countries, and he lives up in Spokane with uh, his wife and his 10 children. So we're really excited to have Carlos here with us this morning uh, for our REACH Global Conference. So before he comes up, I'd love to pray for him and for us and that God would move in our hearts. So let's pray. God, how encouraging is it to us that this very morning there are millions, if not billions of people all around the world gathering together to worship you and to hear from what, hear what you have to say to them through your word. God, I just think uh, of what Carlos is going to come up here and share with us. And, and God, I just thank you for the work that you have done in his life, the way that you captured his heart, and the way that you are now using him to encourage and send out so many others that can just reach this world for you. And Jesus, we anticipate hearing from you this morning. We anticipate our hearts being challenged. We anticipate your word coming through Carlos, this morning, and in such a way that we can, can not only connect with you, but, but be impassioned for what it is that you're calling us to do. So we thank you for this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Buenos dias. Over a hundred years ago, in the city of Dallas, Texas, there was a gathering of people. They were considering whether to send missionaries from America, not to the traditional places where missionaries were going, but sending them to my country. And I can imagine, as in a, any other missions conference, they were probably typically using the famous passage in Acts 16, so-called the first Macedonian call. Do you remember that passage, right? We'll come to it. But first... Let me introduce my family and my 10 kids and the one single wife, single birth, all of them, none of them adopted, all of them from my wife and I. So if I can start moving these slides, there you go. This is the wedding of the second daughter. My wife is an amazing woman. She's the one that made all those dresses. I mean, we cannot afford to buy that stuff, you know. And as you can tell, we are a typical Chinese family. <laughs> we practice the one-boy policy. <laughs> so there's, there's the, second, the second wedding. And I was born in this small little country down there in Central America called El Salvador. For some of you who might remember... Uh, Reagan and all of that and the Contra affairs and so on you might remember that my country went through a strong civil war well I was in the middle of all of that when I came to faith in Christ 
uh, I was part of the revolution. And from the streets of my country, the Lord rescued me with a sense of passion and a sense of justice and a sense of trying to bring something that was going to change the lives of people in many parts of the world. So I went to Texas. That's how I became a Longhorn for postgraduate education in engineering. I worked for EPA and eventually moved to the Middle East. And I got connected with a pastor, a pastor of my church in El Salvador, as missions was sweeping through the country. And he became the president of Partners International, and he was the man that designed the 1040 window, if you remember that. El Salvador, as some of you know, is a place of earthquakes, it's a place of poverty. I'm impressed by how many of you guys speak Spanish. That is great. And it was people like you, Americans, that a hundred years ago they heard this call. Come over to Macedonia and help us. It was the call of people from countries like mine that were asking people like you to make a commitment of faith to abandon your country, to abandon the comfort, which back then was the best. Maybe it is still today. And so you came. Of course, the first Macedonian call was given to Paul. And he left his country. And that's what we teach our kids in Sunday school, right? The first Macedonian call, and Paul goes out, goes from, Macedon- from, from, from Troas to Macedonia, the first mission- missionary journey, the second missionary journey, the third missionary journey, the fourth missionary journey. Paul ends up in prison and so on. We know that in Acts 16, is when the, the doctor, Dr. Luke, a secular man, not, not a, a religious person necessarily, joins in the missionary band because the Bible says that at night Paul had a dream. And we can preach on that a lot. The dream was given to Paul, not to everyone. But Paul was the leader of the team and the next morning they understood that God was calling who? Us. Isn't that amazing? How can the Lord talk to the leadership? Paul, the leader of the missionary team. And then we understand that God is calling us. I am so glad for the leadership of the churches in America who responded to the missionary call of my people for you guys to respond and stand with them so that the gospel can come to people like me. So I am a Christian. And missions works. And, the, and, the, and the, this missions faith promise is not just an envelope. It's not just a check. It's just not a 20 or a 20,000, whatever amount you, you are prospered by God and you trust in faith that he's going to give you to support missions. This is people. It is humans. It is families. It is kids. It is people like me who are saying, come over and help us. The sad part of all of that is that the first Macedonian call, successful as it was, somehow did not sustain, did not have the momentum to keep the church going. And the very places where Paul worked, 
the very place where Paul went to prison for the sake of the gospel, today they are called the 1040 window. I mean, 10 degrees north, 40 degrees north is the place in the world where everything that is wrong is wrong. It's the place where most of the Buddhists live and where the heart of Islam is and where the heart of Hinduism is. You talk about human trafficking, internally displaced people, refugees, illiteracy, child mortality, lack of access to scripture, dialects without even the New Testament. Anything that you can imagine is wrong. For us as humans and for us as Christians, it's concentrated in that rectangle right there. The very places that were the object of the first missionary call. Now something is also dramatically different there. And let me show you a different picture now. And you will see these two apparently contradicting pictures happening next to each other. Look at this chart. It says that in 1980s, something dramatic happened. The church exploded. Some of you have been praying for a revival. I have good news for you. The revival has come. But it did not come to America. The Lord prospered the work of the missionaries. And the church in the non-Western countries is exploding. Look at that. The percentage of evangelicals as a percentage of the population of the world is actually growing faster than the growth of the population. And if you ask more specific questions, where is that happening? It's happening right there. It's happening in Asia. It's happening in Africa. And it's happening in Latin America. The feet of him who bring good news are still beautiful. But they are not white anymore. There are more Christians today in Asia than there are Christians in all of North America and all of Europe combined. And now think with me now. Get your, yourself out of a church context and let's try to think business here. Could you imagine if we're asking during the missions conference for access to a huge pile of resources, of potential resources, of investments, of mutual funds, where to put our money so that we can get the greatest return. Where is the potential greatest pool of missionaries in the world today? If the local church, and it is the local church, if the local church, and it is the local church, the responsible one to, to implement the Great Commission, where do you think most of the missionaries are potentially located today? In Asia, in Africa, and in Latin America. Does that mean that you should not be sending missionaries? I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, let's think possibilities here. So the idea is, if we could somehow connect with the Christians in Asia, in Africa, and Latin America, three-fourths of the potential missionary force, and somehow connect with them in an effective way, 
we can actually raise up an incredible army of missionaries. Are you with me? So that was the idea that gave birth to Partners International. It all began in China in 1943. The Japanese are invading, the Boxer Revolution, Mao Zedong, all of that. The Western missionaries are being expelled from the country. A missionary from Seattle, a businessman from the UK, a group of people dressed in suits, as they used to, considering, if I cannot go back to China, how do we take the gospel to the Chinese? And the idea was born. Why don't we support native, indigenous, local Chinese itinerant pastors? And it, that, that idea just went wild. You have read the stories probably of brother this and that who was in prison number 27 singing hymns in China. You probably heard the story of the church is probably dead in China. Then when it opened up, they discovered that the church is actually prospered. But that concept of supporting indigenous people, of trusting them, of considering them worthy of the same Holy Spirit, of the same vision, that idea of somehow if we support missionaries, we hope they're going to be successful. That idea of if we send missionaries, we hope they're going to bring people to Christ. And they did. And that somehow these people, as we translate the scripture into their language, are going to come to the end of the gospel of Matthew. And they will read that they themselves are being called to take the gospel and make disciples of all nations. And that they will say, I want to do that. And if we can come together and work with them, that idea caught on fire. And so it went on. Today, partners works with hundreds of indigenous workers. Last time I counted, it was over 4,000 indigenous national natives, missionaries, who have this passion, who have no visa problem, who already like the food, Saying, help me out. Give me the training. Anyway, I was born in El Salvador. I lived in many countries. And today I feel like I need to give you a report on what I've seen. So let me give you the three lessons that I have seen after all these years of travel. Lesson number one. The people of God want to do God's will. In Sudan, in India, in China, in Africa, in Nepal, in Indonesia, in Mexico, in El Salvador. Please notice that I'm not saying that they have what they need to do God's will. Except the will to do God's will. But God's people want to do God's will. That sounds like a truism. I mean, don't you want to do God's will? Yes? So it's no surprise for you if I tell you that people in different languages, 
in different latitudes, with different skin pigmentation, they also want to do God's will. Would it be unbelievable to you to tell you that I've been in mission conferences in China, and in mission conferences in India, and in mission conferences in Latin America where they are discussing how they are going to take the gospel to the unrich? Does that make sense to you? Why is that? Because they are also God's people. They may not have Bibles. They may not have the training. They may not have the freedom to do it. But they want to do God's will. People like Mustafa, an original of North Africa, among the Berbers. Mustafa is quite a unique person. He decided not to marry So that he can advance the cause of the gospel among the Berber Kabyles in Algeria in the middle of the civil war. Today, brothers and sisters, the largest church in North Africa is his church. The largest church among Muslim converts in all of North Africa, apart from Egypt, is in the country of Algeria. And this man is the one behind it. And I can tell you story after story. Of course, no one believed in him. How can you believe a man who claimed himself to be illiterate in three languages? Berber, Arabic, and French. With this big dream of taking the gospel back to North Africa. Would you believe that? You wouldn't be alone if you didn't. But I also suffer people not believing in me. And so I believed in him. And we began supporting him. Today in Algeria, we have the largest church in all of North Africa. We also believe in women, such as Anita, who is dealing with human traffic and not only raiding brothels at night at high risk, but also trying to struggle with the fact that women need to be rescued. But they also need to be taught the skill, some trades, some way of reinserting back into society. And the permanent problem, problem of what do you do with the kids? And how do you fight AIDS? The gospel is more than passports to heaven, we believe. And the gospel is for more than guys. It's also for women. And it's also needing to show compassion. We work with people that have this idea of, even in India, of reaching out to the largest, sec- to the second largest Muslim population in the world. The largest Muslim country in the world is Indonesia. You know that. The second largest Muslim country in the world is either Pakistan or India. And in India, the Indian churches, some of them, especially in the north, are now with this dream of reaching out to Muslims. And how can Indians reach out to Muslims when they're killing each other? Are you ready for a miracle? I am. And we're supporting them. The people of God in India... In spite of all the problems, in spite of corruption at the police who are taking kickbacks from the business, we're working with men and women 
who simply put are God's people and that want to do God's will. A second thing that I learned is that the fields remain white into harvest and the laborers are still few. This is a fabulous picture here. And I'll tell you why. And I hope you don't get offended. The American is listening. The American is usually the one talking. But here the American is listening. And this is the first president of Partners International listening to a man that this church has supported for many years. His name is Chris Marantica in Indonesia. Alan Finley took on the task of supporting the work of Chris Marantica. And he went out to conferences talking about how these men, a graduate from Dallas Theological Seminary, who had this vision of planting one church in every one village in one generation in the largest Muslim country in the world, with a terrible English, with a heavy accent, very difficult to understand him, but completely moved by the Spirit of God with this vision. One church in every one village in one generation. And I'll tell you later the result of your support. This man, his name is Yusuf Mati. I hope to be with him in 10 days. An Arab who works among the Kurds in the north of Iraq. Saddam Hussein is trying to kill him. It's a fascinating story, but just to say this. By now, he has planted, with the help of partners, three schools, three radio stations, medical clinics, and so on, in the north part of Iraq, where God is prospering his church. And in the last two years, we've been working together in trying to establish a Christian university in northern Iraq. And you know who's paying for all of that? You know who's paying the CCCU and the people from Santa Barbara and the people from all these other famous uh, American Christian universities to develop curriculum and so on? Over a quarter of a million dollars? You know who's paying for that? The churches in Iraq. You know who is sending money to Spokane, Washington, to Partners International so that we can open schools in Sudan? The churches in Iraq. Brothers and sisters, the people of God want to do God's will. And the laborers are still few, and the harvest is plentiful. But God is raising all these new people Chinese training Indians, Indians training in, uh, Africans, tribal context, teaching tribals in India how to work with tribals. Isn't that amazing? And that gives birth to my third point. The third point is that there is a rise of a non-traditional missions force. And that is the second Macedonian call. We'll come to that. This is the result of your support. Hundreds of graduates in the Evangelical Theological Seminary of Indonesia, both men and women, who have gone through all this Hundreds of islands in Indonesia establishing seminaries and mini-seminaries. The condition for graduation is you have to establish a church with 30 baptized, converted believers. 
Now, share that with Fuller. <laughs> this is the latest statistic. Let me go back here. Latest statistic on that table, which you probably won't see, but let me try to read it for you and then I'll highlight it. Since the beginning of the ministry, the number of salvation decisions, people that have made a, a confession of faith in Christ, is over 268 thousand Muslim converts in the largest Islamic nation on earth. Have you heard of one Muslim convert? What if I tell you 268,000? Isn't that amazing? What about the number of churches? People baptized, 104,000. Number of people on new preaching points. Only last year, over 158 New places of worship were open in Indonesia. From a recent email from him, he writes, Institutions are approved by the government and receive degrees approved by the government. Praise the Lord for his protection so that we could operate in this largest Islamic nation in the world. I am encouraged because even though the opposition is getting stronger and stronger, 6,718 people were saved in 2013. And 3,333 of them followed through baptism. And 158 mission points and churches were started in Indonesia. By Indonesians. It is the rise of a new missionary force. The nationals today are not called nationals anymore. If you're in the mission circles, nationals are now called the majority world. Sounds a lot better, doesn't it? They are not the indigenous people. They are not the natives. The natives are coming to America to get PhD degrees. The natives are going back to their countries, establishing churches that are the largest ever in history. The, the nationals are going back, recovering land that, quite honestly, Americans will not be able to go back to, even if you want to. Yes, it is a context of war. This is from Sudan, a child soldier. Yes, it is national disasters. Yes, it is persecution and destruction of churches, bombing people in prison. And you will say, Carlos, I'm getting these two pictures, and I hope you are. There is all this persecution. There is all this privation there is all these needs and at the same time the church is growing and the church is prospering and the people want to do god's will and they are going out i mean how do you explain this how, how, how does that happen the answer is if you watch the film on the roof i will tell you i don't know <laughs> but this is not the first time it has happened and this is the second Macedonian call. The first Macedonian call was, please come over to Macedonia and help us. It was a big change. This is a call given to a man that even though he was the apostle to the Gentiles, will go every Saturday to the synagogue to talk to the Jews first. And after, to the Gentiles. So this is a call that is given by a man that is speaking a different language that he understood because he was a Greek. 
a Hellenized Jew. He's a man that, that, that eats differently, that lives in a different country, that is going to take Paul and his missionary band away from the zone of comfort. And he responded. And you know the story. There's Lydia, there's the jailkeeper, all of that. But the question now is, so whatever happened to the Macedonian church? Can you fast forward and tell me, how did it go? So if you go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I'll give you the story. Chapter 2 in the Macedonian saga. We want you, brothers, we want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. This is several years later. So what do you expect? What, what, what do you think is going to happen? How did it go with the Macedonian church? Maybe they're going to tell us about the great teachers they have. Maybe they're going to tell us about the prominent members of the church. Maybe they will tell us about what? Well, this is how Paul writes about them. They are really suffering a lot. They are not afflicted. They are under severe test of affliction. I mean, this is a superlative way of talking. This is not just a test. This is not just severe. This is just not affliction. It's a severe test of affliction. So their conditions are not good. The environment is not positive. They are suffering persecution. So you get that context. Persecution. And then it says, their abundance of joy. If you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a long time, you know what I'm talking about. That supernatural, unexplicable joy in the middle of persecution. Somehow it happens to us. We know it. It's by the Spirit of God. It doesn't talk about happiness. It's about joy. Their abundance of joy and their back to superlatives. It's not poverty. It's not... They are trying to make their ends meet. It is not their struggle at the end of the month to make their payments. It is not their 401 became a 201 or something. I mean, it's, 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 it's a severe test of affliction. And now it's extreme poverty. Extreme poverty. So what do you expect they're going to say? They want us to collect an offering and help them, right? Or something like that. That would be natural. In a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. How can a church in the middle of persecution, a severe test of affliction... In the middle of deep poverty. Be overflowing in a wealth of generosity. 
And what do they say? This is what they say. Of their own free will, begging us. Now that's a strong word. No one likes to beg. I don't. Begging us earnestly, again superlatives, for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You understand what is happening here? A persecuted church, an extremely poor church, somehow joyful, is begging Paul, Paul, I know that you're going back to Jerusalem. Paul, I know that the church in Jerusalem is under extreme persecution. And we beg you, please allow us to help. If you were Paul, what would you say to them? Oh, don't worry about it. Oh, that's okay. Oh, you, you don't have to do this. On and on and on. So what is the secret? The secret is very simple. They had a beautiful relationship. They were walking in communion with God. And what are the lessons? The lessons are the people of God, even in Macedonia, and in Sudan, and in America at least a hundred years ago and today, and in Indonesia, and in Nepal, and in Latin America, the people of God everywhere want to do God's will, including the commandment that says, go and make disciples of all nations. That the fields do remain white into harvest, that the laborers are still few. But the good news for you is, Calvary, you're not alone anymore. Please tell America, you're not alone anymore. The Lord prosper your work. The Lord has multiplied your investments. The Christians today speak with a funny accent. We might have some color in life. And we're here to stay. And we're here to tell you that we want to work together. And we earnestly beg you. Let's work together. The salt is not good if it doesn't come out from the salt shaker. And the light is not good if it is hidden. America and you came out and the light was not hidden. We are a holy nation. We, you and I, come now together to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let me finish with an Arab proverb that says this. A single hand cannot clap. So I extend my hand to you on behalf of the nationals, of the natives, of the indigenous, to say, can we clap together for the Lord as we take the gospel to the ends of the earth? I hope you say yes. May the Lord bless you. Thank you.